would now please take in your hands your copies of God's Word. Turn with me once again to the book of Acts. Today we will be studying the same uh, passage that we studied uh, last week. This is going to be Acts chapter 9, verses 19, well the second half of verse 19 through verse 31. Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 31. Hear now the word of God. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon our heart last week. We began studying the early days after Saul's conversion to Jesus Christ. And we began by looking at the hesitancy of the churches in both Damascus and in Jerusalem concerning Saul. And it makes sense. He was a persecutor and a murderer of the church, and now he's going around preaching the good news. People were doubting the claim of his conversion, particularly in Jerusalem. They were wanting to see some evidence for the sincerity of his belief. And this is something that, the, uh, that James says in his epistles when he says that even the demons believe and they shudder. There are many who become intellectually convinced of the truths of Christianity. Many who do this. And yet... They may still be no more a child of heaven than Satan himself. Faith is not an intellectual property. Yes, the mind is involved. There is a highway that goes from the mind into the heart. But that grace must go from our mind and enter into our heart at some point. Satan is intellectually convinced of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he is Satan and an enemy of the church. And so the church is wanting some justification for the faith that, is in, that, that, that Paul has. Faith is something that takes place inside of the Christian, but it is not something that remains inside of the Christian. Just as fuel ignites when a flame is put to it, so the Christian's life is ignited uh, in newness of life when the flame of the Holy Spirit 
is placed in the heart. Scripture gives us many character evidences that the Spirit has touched our heart. The fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul gives us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are character evidences. But last week, we saw the more tangible evidences of the works that we do, the good works done by Paul and the good works done by Christians. These good works were, as we observed, necessary, not in order for us to be accounted righteous on the side of God. But they are necessary as fruits and evidences of the saving faith that dwells within us. Heaven forbid any of us go to the throne of God. And if we were asked, why are you here? Why should I allow you to dwell in my presence forever and ever? Heaven forbid any of us say, behold the works of my hands, behold my tears, behold my righteous thoughts, behold my own goodness. Heaven forbid that. May we all say, behold the nail-pierced hands of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold his righteousness given to me as a free gift. That is the source of our assurance. That is the source of our justification. But nonetheless, when God saves a person, he saves them as they are, but he does not leave them as they are. It's as Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True faith will always produce good works done for the glory of the God who sent forth his son to live and to die for you. So good works are necessary as evidences. But we're looking at this from the perspective of assurance. We, many of us struggle with assurance. I don't, I've never met a Christian who at some point has not struggled with assurance. And here's the problem when it comes to good works. They're not strong enough to support your assurance by themselves. The assurance of salvation is a heavy grace, and your good works cannot support its weight. You need something else, something else other than your works to place your assurance upon and that it might be able to hold it. What, what is that? What is, where, where is the source of our assurance if it's not just good works, the witness of what we do? Our text today is going to give us two other witnesses that come alongside our good works and build us into what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls a, uh, an infallible assurance of faith. What are those two witnesses? First, the church. The second, the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Let's begin by looking at the church's witness, particularly the, church, the witness of the church's love for one another. Look with me down in Acts chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. And many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching, uh, watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then again, we see the love of the church in Jerusalem for Paul in verses 29 and 30. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off 
to Tarsus. It appears the cost of being a preacher of the gospel was the same in Damascus as it was in Jerusalem. By proclaiming the good news of Christ Jesus, you were risking your life. People despise the preaching of the gospel, and they sought to snuff it out at, for, uh, in any way that they could, even if that meant murder. And so Paul is having to run. He has to run from Damascus. He has to run from Jerusalem. But this morning, I do not want to focus on the hatred of the world for the gospel and its preachers. Instead, I want us to focus upon the radical nature of the church's love for Paul that is seen in the midst of that persecution. Do you remember what Paul was doing the last time we saw him outside of Acts chapter 9? What kind of person was he? What kind, what kind of person is the church showing love and risking their own lives for? They're aiding and abetting a known fugitive. They are risking their own lives. Who is the one that they are risking their own lives for? He was the murderer of Stephen, a beloved member of the church, one of the first deacons, a servant of widows, a servant of the church, a great preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, beloved on in Jerusalem, but also in Damascus. Remember, how did those Christians get in Damascus? It was because of the persecution that followed the martyrdom of Stephen. The church in Damascus knew who Stephen was, and they loved him. The Jerusalem church knew who Stephen was, and they loved him. And yet they were willing to lay their life down to extend the life and to extend the ministry of the one who murdered their beloved Stephen. And it's in here that you see the character of true Christian love. True Christian love is downstream of the love of God shown forth in Jesus Christ. Christian love will do the same thing. Christian love will always be forgiving and it will always be sacrificial. A love that doesn't cost you anything is by definition a cheap love. But the love of God, the love of Christ is not cheap. It is shown forth in the image of the crucified son of God, not the glorified son of God the crucified Son of God who gave himself as a ransom for many. Our love must reflect that great love. If we must sacrifice our time, our comfort, in order to show that love, then we must do so. But we must also be able to sacrifice our pride. Why? Because pride is the thing that stands in the way between us and being able to show a forgiving love to the church of Jesus Christ. The church was able to forgive the murderer of Stephen for a very good reason. It's because the church, the early church, knew something that we should be knowing as well. They were able to forgive the murderer of Stephen because they themselves were the murderer of Jesus Christ. We've gone through several sermons so far in the book of Acts, and there's a common refrain in those sermons that is repeated over and over. I won't go through every one of them, but I, let me give you the one in, in chapter 3. 
chapter 3, Peter in the temple after healing the paralytic and everybody's standing around and, and this is how he addresses the crowd. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he, had to, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Again, Peter, in chapter 4, before the hands of Sanhedrin, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Acts chapter 7, this is Stephen. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. They were able to forgive the murderer of their beloved Stephen because they were the murderers of their beloved Christ, their beloved king, their beloved sacrificial lamb, their savior. They were his murderers. That was easy for the first century Jews to know. And it should be easy for us to know. I've never seen the movie. I think I might have even mentioned this in the sermon, the, 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 the movie, The Passion of the Christ. There's a scene in that movie where the Roman soldiers are driving the nails into the hands of the Lord Jesus. But something you see in that movie is that you don't, you don't know what's happening in the movie, but you have to read the commentary afterwards. The hands that are being used to drive the nails into Jesus' hands they're the hands of the director of the film, Mel Gibson. And there's a reason why he did that. It's because he understood that it wasn't Pilate who was crucifying Christ. It was not the Sanhedrin who was crucifying Christ. It was him who was crucifying Christ. It was not the nails that held Christ upon the cross. It was the love of God for his people that held Jesus upon the cross. And so because of that love, he bears in his body and his soul the wrath of God meant for the sins of all of his people. Everyone in this room who believes in Jesus Christ, you are a murderer. You have crucified Christ. It was your sins that held him there. And yet, no one forced him to go to the cross. He did that of his own will because he loved the Father and he loved the Father's children. He loved the sheep the Father had given to him. Now take a second and think of the one who you just can't forgive. The one who has sinned against you and you just can't get over it. Why can't you forgive? Why can't you move past it? What have they done that is so horrible and so horrendous that one who has been purchased by the blood of the righteous one of God can 
not forgive. You see, this is what motivates Christian love. The love of God in Christ Jesus. The love that was both sacrificial and the love that was also forgiving. When we fail to forgive, we are failing to love others as Christ has loved us. But not only that, we are robbing our brothers and sisters of something that we also need. A witness to our own salvation. A failure to love the church robs her members of their assurance. And one way that we are commanded to show that love is through prayer. There's lots of ways that we show this love for one another. But I want to focus in on on prayer and how your prayers for the saints can show the love of Christ and therefore give them a boost in their assurance. I had COVID uh, the week before last. Um, it was a pretty short little stint of it, but there was one day that was particularly bad. Uh, it was that Wednesday. Um, my fever had spiked. Um, I was laying in the um, uh, the recliner, basically just kind of passing in and out of consciousness. I just felt so incredibly bad. God was very gracious to me because I woke up at one point. Uh, it's usually my uh, one of my joys of just everyday life is that I get to go and put my kids down and read them a Bible story, pray with them, maybe sing them a, sing a hymn with them or something like that. But this one day I wasn't able to do it because I was so sick, and Hillary, my wife, went and did it, and I woke up just in time. And I stayed awake for just long enough to just hear, and, and, and Father, would you please help Daddy feel better? That's not, that's not a lot. That's just a really short, brief little step. But I'll tell you what, I immediately felt better. That was an amazing blessing on my life. And you know what's an even better blessing than just hearing them say it? It's knowing that, that little prayer from Hillary, Mack, and Marlowe ascended into heaven, came into the lap of my great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sanctified that little prayer by his own blood. He delivered it to God the Father, and it was a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. It was a good sacrifice before my God, because of the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. When you hear others, it's, not, it's good that, to know that people are praying for you, but it's just different when you hear other people pray for you. This is one of the reasons why I, I want to do this, this kind of Wednesday kind of prayer meeting. It's an opportunity. I can tell you that I'm praying for you. Somebody else can tell you that they're praying for you, but it's just different when you can hear them praying for you. This is what I want for this church. I want us to grow in our assurance. That's, that's, I, I feel like that's one of my greatest purposes in this life. Not just to bring people to salvation, but to convince you of your salvation. You know how that works? Prayer. Hearing the saints praying for another one, one another. And so the church bears witness to each other's salvation through its love for each other. But it doesn't end there. The church also bears witness to our salvation through what it sees in our lives. Look with me now at the testimony of Barnabas in verses 26 and 27. And when he, heard, uh, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him 
For they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This was not just, he gives us, this, this testimony was not just to get Paul on the, the Jerusalem church's good side. This testimony also had grace for Paul himself. And I'm going to tell you why I think that. It's because as I was telling the children, I think a major work of God in our sanctification is blinding us to our sanctification. Now, why would God blind a Christian to his own sanctification? I think Paul gives us a hint in 2 Corinthians when he's speaking of himself, says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him so that he would be kept from becoming conceited. You see, good works are necessary. We need to be doing good works. But here's the thing. Good works left to themselves will either feed our pride or they will feed our doubt. One of those two things. As Calvin said, our hearts are a factory of idols. We will always substitute the truth for a lie, a lie, and rather than worshiping the giver of those gifts, we will then turn around and worship the vessel of those gifts ourselves. That's just what a prideful heart does. And so the Lord, to keep us from becoming conceited, blinds us to those gifts. And then also, too, they can feed our doubts. They cannot count the amount of people that I've had to counsel people despairing because they felt like they had not done enough and that they had what they had done was so marred with sin that it was good for nothing other than to be thrown into the fire. You see, Martin Luther said that uh, a trouble that a lot of Christians get into is that they're so curved inward. They want to see what they are doing. They want to see themselves. But that is not the ministry of the church. It's not to see what is going on in your own life, but it's to see the good that is going on in the lives of others. You see, I might not be in a position to see the graces that are at work in me. I doubt that you are in a good position to see those gifts. But you know who is? The church that is around you. Whenever Hillary and I host somebody um, over at our house for lunch or for a dinner or something like that, Hillary knows her most important work beyond being a good hostess, beyond cooking a good meal, is that she has to tell me when I have food in my beard. <laughs> you know why? Because I can't see the food in my beard. And it is impossible to have a productive conversation about anything, much less eternal things, when you have ketchup hanging off your mustache. She is in a position to see what I cannot these people around you are in a position to see what you cannot. That is why coming to church is so important. Not just because you have good works to be used to serve them, but because they have good works that can serve you. And they have eyes that can see the grace that God has given in your life. Graces that maybe you are totally and completely unaware of. Church is so necessary. Church is so necessary to keep us alive and keep us going in this Christian life. But you see, the church is it just, it's not just the love of the church that ministers this. It's not just the eyes of the church that minister to us. 
It is also the ministry of the Holy Spirit within the church that ministers to us as well. And this is our second and last part. Look with me down in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul, in his letters, when he speaks of walking, he's, he's, he's using it as an, as an illustration for living. Living people walk. Dead people don't. They just stand there. But you are alive in Christ Jesus. Christ walked out of the tomb. You walk through life, and you walk according to something. You walk according to the Holy Spirit. And we have talked about this in several sermons, but it's so important. You need to understand this. What is the witness of the Holy Spirit? The witness is Jesus Christ. He is the witness of Christ. He makes you alive in Christ so that you might know Christ. He is always pointing us to Christ. So by walking in accordance to the Holy Spirit is walking in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Walking so that we can be conformed into his image. Walking so that we might be assured of the salvation that we have in his wounds. The healing that we have in his wounds. That's what the Spirit is doing to us. Always pointing us to Jesus Christ and begging us to live according to him. But how do we walk according to the Spirit? How do we walk with a mind that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, there's a wrong answer to this. Many people think, well, I walk according to the Spirit. I, I, I grow in the Holy Spirit by feeding the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. You are not the Holy Spirit shepherd. You do not lead the Holy Spirit beside still waters and into green pastures. It is the Holy Spirit that leads you beside still waters and leads you into green pastures. And that living water, that pasture is right here where you are sitting. You walk according to the Holy Spirit with your hands open receiving Christ as he is preached in his word, receiving Christ as you come to his table and partake of the sacraments, as you, as you receive those things by faithful prayer and through hearing the prayer of the saints who are sitting around you, that is how you grow in your walk with the Holy Spirit. You're not impressing God by your good works. You're not getting more of the Spirit. You're not getting more of Christ because you've done more of this or more of that. No, no, no. You grow in good works. You grow in assurance. You grow in confidence by attending to the ordinary means of grace where you receive extraordinary benefits. And I'll just, real quick, two benefits in this text. First of all, the church is built up. That means it's strengthened. It's edified in union with one another. The more you come to church, the more you come and do what you're doing right here and right now, the more in union you become with those sitting next to you. And the stronger you become and the stronger you will make them and the stronger they will make you. And the second one is the church grows. They had peace and they multiplied. I'm not a big fan of putting church growth at the 
forefront of ministry. It seems like whenever people do that, whenever churches do that, there's usually some type of scheme or program that follows that's designed to kind of grow the church. The Bible has given us a program for growing the church, and it's what you're doing right now, attending to the ordinary means of grace. That is how Christ establishes church, and that is how Christ grows the church. That might seem boring, but that is the command of Jesus Christ. Go out, make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, word and sacrament. Why are we adding an evening service? Why are we wanting to do more discipleship stuff? It's because it is there we have the word. And when we are saturated in the word, we grow in our assurance. We grow in the grace of God. And by the grace of God, if it is his will, we will also grow as a people for his glory. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the comfort that it gives. We also thank you for the power that it gives. And that's what I pray for today. I pray that your people will be comforted and that that comfort will be turned into a greater assurance, a greater reliance upon Christ, and a greater love for serving his kingdom rather than serving the false God of self. Would you please do this, Christ? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.